0: Sounds all right, good. so I guess now we can just talk about stuff for whatever we want to do.
1: Welcome to Burning Bones, Burning yeah. Bones podcast.
0: We're trying it out.
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. So what's our first point of the start of the podcast?
0: Well, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe we should explain the Burning Bones thing first. Since yeah. You'll probably want to know what the heck that is.
1: It is, okay. it is your website, so... Yeah, I guess that's on uh, definitely yeah, have free reign on it. That's, that's cool. That. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, let me pull up the uh, the appropriate passage here, and I guess you can pull it up on your own if you'd like to, too. Oh, yeah. Um, it's from Jeremiah chapter 20, right around verse 9 or so. So... I, I didn't
1: think about... I need, I need some Bible open here. Yeah. I, I don't okay. have anything. I know.
0: That's right. It's
1: okay. <laughs> I'll stall for a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, please okay, stop.
0: so Jeremiah, if we recall, is... Uh, Uh, Jeremiah is uh, a prophet um, shortly before the fall of the uh, southern kingdom, if I remember correctly. And um, he's prophesying that uh, God's going to send destruction. And um, of course, that's ultimately what happens. But um, he, he, he knows that God has called him by name as a prophet. Jeremiah 1 tells us this, that God has called him by name and set him apart before he was born, this kind of thing. And yet, um, when... Uh, Jeremiah 20 says that uh, that he's he's upset <laughs> he's upset with God because every time he says what God wants him to say things don't go well um, so here I'll read from the passage and then we can chat about it so uh, verse uh, so this chapter 20 verse 7 says "O Lord you have deceived me and I was deceived you are stronger than I and you have prevailed I've become a laughingstock all the day everyone mocks me for whenever I speak I cry out I shout violence and destruction for the word of the Lord has, come, has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So uh, basically, every time, every time Jeremiah opens his mouth and says what the Lord tells him to say and promises this, this uh, destruction, prophesies this destruction, everybody wants to beat him up because they don't want to hear what he has to say. And it seems that he he thinks that um, when he speaks God's word, everything's going to go well, and so that's why he says, "Lord, you've you've deceived me." And we know that God is not a deceiver, but this is how he feels that he he thinks that being a prophet of God is going to lead him to uh, happiness and some kind of prosperity or or something. And yet, when he speaks God's word, he gets he gets beat up and put in jail and persecuted. And so, but and yet he says that if I if I say that I cannot speak His word anymore. It wells up in me like a fire in my bones. I have to let it out that God's word uh, will not let him remain silent, but he must continue to speak what it is that he's received from God. And so the reason I picked this, uh, a long time ago I had this idea um, that, that I was learning all these things about theology and apologetics and these kinds of things, and I... Um, I, I couldn't be quiet about things and uh, unfortunately not everybody always wants to hear some of the things that, that the word has to say or wants to uh, try to hold to good theology and this kind of thing and certainly I don't always either in my sinfulness and yet um, we need to hear what God's word has to say and we can't be quiet even though there's persecution even though our sinful flesh fights against it we need to hear what God's word tells us um, about the threat of, of uh, judgment and also about uh, the promise of the gospel and so that's that's the burning bones things, uh, the spring burns thing, kind of in a nutshell.
1: Now, you mentioned that your website was originally for a form of apologetics. Now, that might be an unfamiliar word to some listeners. What do you mean by apologetics, and how does that tie into the podcast we're doing right now?
0: Sure. So, apologetics is um, basically a defense of something. If you, uh, so, in our, in our language, we use the word apologize to say that we're sorry for something. But classically, it's very different. It's almost the opposite of that—that that to give an apology is to give a defense—and um, uh, we see this in, for example, the, the Book of Concord. We have the apology of the Augsburg Confession, which does not mean that they're taking everything back that they were saying. They're, fact, uh,
1: they're, they're explaining it, quite they're the opposite.
0: It. Yeah, exactly. So w- this this word shows up in Scripture in First Peter chapter three, uh, verse fifteen. It says that we should um, we should give a defense. We should give a reason. For the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect and the word in the greek there is something like um unapologetus uh that that, that you are not um you are not uh without an answer but in fact uh you have an answer Apologet, yeah mm-hmm. so un is the, is actually un is romans one they have no defense first Peter yep. is is <laughs> apologetics so you have it it's for some form of that I'm, I'm my Greek is rusty but um but it's that you have an that you have a defense you have a reason for what you believe um and so apologetics is basically trying to knock down barriers to faith in the gospel and proclaiming um the law and the gospel for the repentance of sins and faith and so um there's all sorts of that's a, it's a broad uh, field of Christianity is apologetics. And there's all sorts of different discussions and kind of methodologies and, and uh, ways of doing that. And there's all sorts of debates along those lines. But in general, Christians are to be ready to give a defense, to give an apologetic for what, the, for what we believe.
1: Mm, absolutely. And sometimes we can even have a more narrow view of apologetics in which we when we discuss it, We only really talk about the debates of God's existence or the debates of, you know, um, you can have ontological arguments, you can have presuppositional arguments, a lot of these various different camps of proving God's existence really more in the face of atheism. But I think when we want to explore the idea of apologetics, we can say that because it's an answer for the reason of our faith, this could be an answer to anything. I mean, this could be an answer to your Baptist friend down the street as to why you baptize infants. This could be an answer to your Jehovah's Witness friends as to why you believe in the Trinity or why the historic church has believed in the Trinity, or maybe even a question to um, your Roman Catholic friends as to why our liturgies differ in certain ways and why we have particular practices that we've kept and why we have some that we've tossed away. Um, so in that sense, we really want to encompass apologetics in a lot of different ways. And we see that everything can be an apologetic in a sense. We don't want to narrow it down to just one thing, although it usually is only used in those terms. We kind of want this to be all encompassing, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, you're right that it, usually it's used in kind of this, yeah, it's conversations with non-Christians, especially with atheists. Um, but yeah, we should be, we should want to give a defense for everything we believe. We, we believe what we believe is in Scripture, and therefore we should um, be willing to, to talk about these things and be eager to talk about these things in some way. Um, so that we can hopefully all believe what Scripture says and be unified and be one, just as, as Christ uh, prayed that we would be one, that all of his followers would be one and unified. And, of course, this side of heaven, that's, that seems to be a pretty tall order. Um, but that's still our goal, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, and I Absolutely. think, and th- this, and, of course, that goes hand in hand with another big topic we can talk about maybe another time, but about um, catechesis and that if people are going to mm. be able to give an apologetic, a defense for what they believe, they need to know what they believe and why they believe it otherwise they're not going to be able to defend that um in a, in a discussion and so that um ties in and and for for lutherans um, this is a big deal right we we uh, have these catechisms uh that have been passed down to us from from luther and the church on how to catechize and what we believe And very uh kind of sh- the small catechism is not very very big at all that's why it's called a small catechism but um but but a lot of people don't bother reading it or understanding it or asking questions about it and we need to continually do that um, all throughout our lives to understand what the scripture says about all these different things so that we can engage in discussions and give our apologetic that's right
1: Mm. oh gosh that was one of the most attractive things to me coming to lutheran church was how open lutherans are to looking at other faiths and you know particularly other christian denominations Um, because for myself growing up in the evangelical world, growing up in a non-denominational church, it was looked down upon to even look into or study or, or look at more historical things outside of our own denomination because denominations were really shunned. And I was very surprised by how open Lutherans are and how confident they are in their theology, that they're not afraid to, to look at challenges. They're not afraid to look at how other faiths interpret the scriptures, because they're very confident that the scriptures are readable, that they're understandable, and that we can, you know, reason them. We, we, can, we can look at them with reason and we can say, what does this say? What does this mean? And it's such a beautiful thing when we can kind of come together like that and not be ashamed and not be afraid so that we kind of, um, <laughs> as I would put it, maybe just close your ears and cover your eyes whenever another type of worldview might come your way.
0: Yeah, I mean that—that that should be the idea that we—we we engage with other um, Christian faiths, but also non-Christian faiths too. And I'm—I'm mm-hmm. I'm a little concerned that that's not always the case, and that's part of why I wanted to—to uh, to get this other uh, degree in apologetics and this kind of thing to try okay. to see what I can do to to encourage uh, the body of Christ and the Lutheran Church in particular to be willing to engage in these issues and to feel confident in what we believe, so that we can—so um, that we can have the—the. Um, the, the confidence, I guess, to have the confidence to, to speak out in these ways and to uh, to share the good news when we have opportunities to do so um, and to the people around us in our different vocations and all that. All right, so maybe mm-hmm. we should we should do a little introduction. I don't think we've even said our names yet.
1: <laughs> they're listening. They're like, who are these people? Yeah. Oh,
0: goodness. <laughs> all right. Um, who wants to go first? You want
1: to go first? Oh, should I go first? Okay. Yeah, you should go first. Uh, I'll go first. Then. All right. So uh, my name is Jacob Schaefer. I am a normal LCMS layman, <laughs> but I do have a long history and just working in churches and that sort of stuff, and I guess maybe we should go back to the beginning. Should I go back way to the beginning? Sure, go back, just yeah. Way back? Take okay. Back. So I guess this ha- this has to go all the way back to where I was born um, and where where things started for me. I was born, first of all, in a non-denominational church. Born and raised Christian, thankfully. I had very wonderful Christian parents who raised me very well in the faith. They, they taught me the scriptures very, very well. And uh, I definitely don't fault any of them for that. But as I grew up in a non-denominational church, I started to have desires to be a pastor because I was always a very theologically-minded young man. I definitely had my faults and my failures and I kind of weaned back and forth between whether or not I was really into the faith or not into the faith. Um, but by the time high school rolled around, maybe mid, maybe my junior year, I don't know, I knew I wanted to be a pastor of some sort because theology was interesting to me and it was something that I, I admired and something that I kind of wanted to be preaching about, you know, it was something that that was starting to grip my heart, and I started to think very deeply upon the scriptures, about Christian living, about piety, and these sorts of things. And so, of course, for the non-denominational church, mine in particular was called Calvary Chapel. They have bible colleges that they offer to people to join and to enroll in where you can study the scriptures and for the most part if men enroll in that it's usually because they have a desire to become a pastor and there's a lot of different things that you can do in that and part of that is because calvary chapel is a non-dominational church understands the ministry the holy ministry a little bit different than lutherans do and that might be a conversation for another time Sure. but um in this particular instance I joined a Calvary Chapel Bible College in the Philippines, and so I know the Philippines is a very odd place to be. So the you, reason for that didn't is think because Calvary my Chapel pastor, is real big there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. I think what's really big in the Philippines right now is actually the Pentecostal movement. That's really really big. But if, you know, if I had to describe Calvary Chapel, they're kind of a blending of Baptist and Pentecostal. Like the two just kind of smushed together, and it's really leaky and odd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. But so anyway, so what happened is my home church back home, they had acquired this Bible college in the Philippines, and so my pastor was the owner of it. And so of course, he is rushing to get anybody he can to join this college. And it has this kind of infamous air about it, because among the different Bible colleges, I think they have one in California, they have one in Philippines, they have one in Israel, they have one in oh, somewhere in England think like york or something some other place They they got them all over the place spread around the world because they're really big on the whole missions deal um but so anyway the philippines one was the one that everybody feared like nobody wanted to go to the philippines one because that was the one where they 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 shoved a four-year biblical studies degree down into two years of study and one year of an internship so that was the place where if you didn't want to get sleep and if you wanted to just uh (laughs) kill yourself, that's where you would go. You know, if if you just wanted to be drowned in books, that was the place. And of course, you know, I'm thinking I want to be a pastor, but I want to be trained because I don't know the scriptures well enough. And I always felt kind of inadequate with my understanding of the scriptures. In fact, even starting off, I'll I'll tell you what, being a young boy and looking at the scriptures is a very daunting task when you don't have proper scriptural catechesis, right? Hmm. And I think one of the beauties of the Lutheran catechesis, especially the small catechism, is it doesn't necessarily give you a systematic approach to the scriptures like you know you don't necessarily know how to study each one thoroughly but you understand the main thematics of scripture so that i can i mean reading through the small catechism enough times i can open up the scriptures and i can pick any passage and i can look at that and go how is this pertaining to christ because the small catechism teaches us that everything pertains to christ and that really gives us this this overarching system for approaching the scriptures in an easy manner when you don't have all the scriptures memorized. It's very daunting for, especially for laymen, who don't understand all the different books of the Bible, how they play into the role of Christ, how they all build into each other, to just be dumped on that all of a sudden when you haven't been taught any of that. But thankfully, you know, in Lutheran catechesis, they have a little bit of that. But so anyway, um, so I went through this very, very intense course. Um, we, We studied the scriptures very heavily. Of course, being um, being a non denominational, they're not necessarily sola scriptura, they are more solo scriptura, as in the scripture alone is our only source of any, uh, of course, infallible rule, but also any rule whatsoever. So we don't draw anything other than what the scripture says. We don't look at history, we don't look at uh, the creeds, we don't look at anything like that, only the scriptures. And so through studying the scripture very, very carefully, um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of problems started coming out. And I, I think the first of the problems that I started to notice was how the scriptures talk about the will of mankind and original sin. I, I think it was when I was going through Romans and I saw the clarity at how scripture addresses Romans in, in Romans three I think it is especially where it talks about how no one seeks for God, no one does good, no, not one, you know, like it talks about how their mouth is an open tomb, right? And and under their tongues is the venom of asps, constantly lying, constantly wickedness all day long. And that was a direct statement upon the sinfulness of man in his original sin, you know, his his regular sinful state. And and the big problem that I was having, especially in the non-denominational church, and anybody who's a, who's attended one, who's been to a service, knows that in, in most Baptist churches, in non-denominational churches, um in, in most American Christianity circles, the high point of your service is gonna be the decision that you make for Christ. And this is this is absolutely the most important thing, right? I mean you go you go to a service, you have your songs that they play in the beginning, praise songs, some of them do hymns, thankfully. You have your 40-minute sermon, and hopefully near the end of the 40-minute sermon, the pastor is now speaking the harshest law that he can to you because he wants to really guilt trip you into this decision for Christ mm-hmm. where you're going to use your will, and you're going to place your will into Christ or make use your will to make this decision to be on God's team. Kind of. It's almost like a football draft, really. <laughs> well. Less like football draft, more like just like you know your high school, you know football team where you really want to join, really bad. So your mom's kind of egging you on a little bit, and you're like, okay, fine, yeah, whatever, I'll join. I'll go play sports. Yeah, it's, it's peer pressure <laughs> for the most part. It's it's peer pressure. It's it really is. It's an arm twist. Yeah. If they're gonna be honest about it, you know ne- you're never gonna get people's hands put up if you just declare the pure gospel of that Christ has died for you. Christ has laid down his life for you, and that's it. You're never gonna get hands raised for that. Because people need to be arm twisted to make that kind of a decision. So a, a lot of horrible stuff. But so I, as I was studying the scriptures, right, you start to see that the scripture paints man in this very bleak place, not in a place where his will is capable of choosing good or capable of longing for God or capable of doing anything good for Christ, but really more in a place where where we're bound, right? The, the scriptures all over the place use Use words such as you are in slavery to sin, that your will is bound, that before the illumination of the spirit, you have nothing, that you need to be born again to even see God, right? That there's this something that you're lacking, and your old man can do nothing to have any of it or even desire any of it. And um, of course, as I started to question this, it, it was taken less as my curiosity and my earnest questioning in the scriptures and more is this betrayal. And um, I hate to say this too. I mean, it's, it's really something where even I have a difficulty pointing too many fingers because I understand where they're coming from. These people, a lot of people in the non-denominational church, they're not, inherently, they're not inherently hard against that kind of stuff. They're taught to be. They're not inherently hard against doctrinal distinctions and doctrinal questions. They're taught to be questioning of people who, who question what they're taught. And it's really, really hard to describe almost, but they even act kind of cultish in a way, in a way that they don't want you to question what they teach you. They want you to just accept it and not think too hard on it. And so when I started to kind of, you know, rock the boat and push what I was learning and say, you know, I'm not seeing this in the scriptures. I'm not seeing this decision for Christ in the scriptures. Instead of saying, well, that's a very serious thing that you're seeing there. Let's look together, right? Let's be like the Bereans and look together on this and, and read the scriptures together. Instead, it was an instant accusation that I was trying to cause division or trying to cause conflict or trying to cause some sort of problems. And instantly, people accused me. They said, well, what are you reading? What are you reading outside the scriptures? Somebody's informing this to you. You can't possibly be learning this on your own. Of course, right? Because <laughs> if it doesn't agree with us, you're learning it from somewhere else, right? <laughs> right. And, and that wasn't the case at all. I mean, I'd, I'd, At least when it started off, it was very innocent but so as time kind of went on, I started to discover that other Christians kind of thought the same way. Cause I, I was feeling kind of alone. I started searching around online and lo and behold, who I found first were the Puritans. <laughs> and so I started reading, uh, I'm trying you to think, the Arthur Puritans w. online. Yes. The, you'd be surprised. There's so many resources for the Puritans online. That's just free resources people love. And of course, wow. you know, I mean, you look around for, um, if you just type into Google search, right, does man have free will? What's the first thing that's going to pop up? Like, sinners in the hand of an angry god, yeah. writings by the Puritans, because they're the ones who have the whole, like, you know, you don't have free will kind of thing going on. Right, right. And that's not necessarily what they teach. you got to be very clear on that. I don't want to paint the Puritans the wrong way. I definitely was a Puritan for a very long time, and I I know that's not precisely what they teach. But those are the first ones that I kind of came around to. And so I started getting very into church history and the Reformed faith. And it started off as just, you know, like, it was a morbid curiosity. Excuse me. Because when you grow up, especially in in the Calvary Chapel circles, they don't talk about church history. They don't talk about, I mean, you don't talk about Puritans. You don't talk about any of those people. You don't even talk about other denominations unless you're making jokes about them, unless you're, you know, cracking, you know, cracking wise ones at them. So you don't even look into that kind of stuff. So when I started diving into this theology, you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at John Calvin. I'm I'm starting to read um, Arthur W. Pink. He's got this attributes of God stuff. I'm starting to dive into um, Jonathan Edwards. All these really, you know, um, yeah. even uh, who who's the really popular Reformed Baptist? I mean, just stupid popular people. Everybody's got his books. He smokes cigars. Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, yeah. Um, reading a lot of Charles Spurgeon, and I started to realize like. Even though these guys were not Lutheran, of course, in hindsight, right, you can look back and say, oh, these guys aren't Lutheran. So they don't really have everything. Um, but at the time, right, I'm reading these guys and I'm like, these guys have so much biblical theology. They're backing up with proof texts. They got their systems going on. They know what they're talking about. I have to study these guys. Yeah. And so the more I read, the more I read, the more I'm realizing um, that really the non-denominationalists were just very confused. I mean especially even, I mean, if you want to talk about what it means to be non-denominational, what does it even mean? You know, if a denomination is simply this, this abstract thing that helps us to define what we confess about the church, about Jesus, about the word of God, then what does it even mean to be non-denominational? I mean, to be non-denominational is to be confused about what, (laughs) what we have denominations for. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's this, it's a horrible confusion. And and the non-denominationals don't even realize it because no. they don't look at anybody else other than themselves. Well, that's just like, an
0: honest, sc- let's clear, it's just an honest um, uh, description, right? I mean, if you if you took your baby to the non-denominational church and said, "I want to get my baby baptized," they'd tell you no, because they have denominational beliefs, right? That's um, right. You know, Tim Hawkins says that non-denominational churches are
1: just Baptist churches with cool websites, <laughs> cool websites and coffee shops, baby. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, man, there's so many coffee shops. It's crazy. But that's that's exactly right. They have a confession. It's just not written on paper. It's not neat and nice. It's more of a a verbal agreement that this is how they interpret the scriptures. And for the most part, the non-denominational church is very dispensational, um, definitely credo-baptist, more on the side of decision theology. They believe that the will is very much involved with your conversion rather than the object of your conversion. Um, Definitely not trusting of history. They definitely don't want to touch history. Anything that's repeated, anything that's that's gleaned by somebody else who's not in this era, this age, is outdated. It's traditional. And they're a church that has no traditions. If you're not watching the, uh, the video, I just did air quotes because they have no traditions. Air quotes. Air quotes. Air <laughs> air. <laughs> you know, I, got, I just got to go off on a tangent with that. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. So they they look at us, right? They look at, like, a Lutheran church. They could look at an Anglican church, a Roman Catholic church. You know, pick your liturgical church. And they look at that and they go, well, that's just so Catholic. That's just so traditional. That's just so, you know, that's tradition of men. because it's, it's, yeah, empty traditions That's right, traditions of men. Yeah, right. That's right. It's not not spirit-filled. It's so ridiculous. What do you call your four praise songs and then your announcements and then your 40-minute sermon and the pastor better not go over 40 minutes or else we're going to, you know... Get you know, draw out and leave,
0: and then the last praise song. contemperament.
1: The the decision for Christ. What is that? That's our tradition. Oh, it's so ridiculous. But
0: but, but you're right, because they don't know the history of that. They don't know about you know Finney and the Great Awakening and all this kind of stuff. They don't realize that that is a tradition. And and like you said, a lot of the people don't even know any better. They've just been taught this is how Christianity is. They don't know that that's not how things have been throughout the history of Christianity. So they don't even know to question what's being taught to them. I don't know there's any other option except for the dead, the seemingly dead tradition of the other mainline Protestant churches, or even the Catholic Church for
1: that matter. And that's why it's so hard to evangelize to them too, because I think we need to be very sensitive to this as Lutherans, right? We need to be very careful when we talk to them, because when we introduce a different way of thinking as Christians, we are not just coming to them and offering them a different way to read the scriptures, or maybe even a clear way to read the scriptures. We are infringing upon their entire view of Christians because to them, their understanding of what they believe is not just, this is my denomination and what we believe. This is what all of Christianity is. So when you're coming to them and you're saying, I believe this is a Lutheran and this is what Christianity is, you're infringing upon their very worldview, everything that they've built around them, almost even their identity to an extent, because that's the only thing that they understand to be Christian. I mean, if you were to... Uh, um, if I was an honest person, you know, if, if I were to go back thinking about how I was when I was a high schooler, so this is purely how I was taught by my church. And if you were, I were to look at a Lutheran and say, is that Lutheran saved? <laughs> what do you think my answer would be? <laughs> no, maybe not. Because I look at your traditions and I look at your written prayers and I look at your, your liturgy and I go, this is just so stiff. There's no relationship with Jesus here. I don't think they're even Christians. I don't think they're even saved. Yeah, and it's and it's mean, not given directly in the Bible, so it's it's made up, right? They're adding to this, exactly adding to the Bible, yeah. Exactly, and maybe that's a side conversation for later. Like why why Lutherans have so many things that are outside of the scriptures when we claim we're sola scriptura, and, that, right. and that's maybe a conversation for later.
0: Yeah,
1: but um, for a young evangelical boy like myself, it, it's jarring, right? I look at the other churches and I think Baptists, Baptists are probably saved. They're very similar to us, you know. Uh, Methodists, maybe. anybody who even looks remotely liturgical, definitely not because they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus because c- yeah. they're so stiff. you know, there might be some just because um, some of them might not want to be there. <laughs> but- <laughs> yeah. well, a quick, it, it's quick really comment sad, on honestly. on that
0: and we'll get back to your story. So ironically, oh, the the description you just gave about the non-denominational thing and about that you can, if you question what they're saying, it's almost like they can't conceive of that, right? Um, or, or, or historically, or is like it really in a lot of ways the um, the current Roman Catholic Church is very, very similar in that there's this Pope, right? And and they have the traditions of the Church, and that they can't conceive of anything outside of that. If you say that the Pope is no is not the the Vicar of Christ on Earth, and 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 that you're outside of the Roman Catholic Church, which is again one of those kind of weird. Um, <laughs> uh opposite things right like so it's roman <laughs> but it's catholic which means universal right that that doesn't mean <laughs> so it's the, it's the universal church but it's only one place um yeah that's right <laughs> but, but they'd say the same thing they'd say what do you how can there possibly be salvation outside of outside of the church outside of the authority of the pope right and so really mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways modern evangelicalism has just switched one pope for for another instead of having a pope that's Thousands of miles away, and and uh, sits in a in a fancy chair and whatever. You just have the Pope, who's the head of the local mega church, and whatever that guy says, that must be what Scripture says. And if you question that, then you're you're out. There's there's no way you can even be a Christian if you if you question what what the uh, what the what the pastor says the Bible is saying. And again, most people don't know enough about basic scriptures to even be able to understand that there are different. Um, Christian traditions throughout history and, and, and there's reasons for that and there's sometimes good reasons for that and sometimes not so good reasons for that but that's just the truth that historically it hasn't been um, you can't just go take your Bible and go sit in the corner and say that you have now discovered true Christianity and everybody else has been wrong for the last <coughs> 2,000 years uh, so that's kind of interesting alright so get back to your story so you're, you're this evangelical boy you're going down the reform <laughs> path you're judging all the uh, mainline Protestants with their man-made traditions Right. So we're one you know,
1: one of the big things too, right? what's so attractive about the reformed path, and and you especially know this if you've been in the evangelical circles, is that everything in evangelicalism is all about the inner man and this inner experience that you have with God through worship, um, through the sermon, through your decision for Christ, through all this stuff, right? It's about this inner working, right? And a lot of the a lot of the head knowledge, a lot of the reasoning of scriptures kind of left out, and instead is replaced with this inner mystic experience that you can get through the worship service and through your own personal piety and so for somebody who grew up in that and who's seen that right and and in my mind and I'll just be honest that whole thing is just the praise songs and and the and the crying and the raising your hands it's just really sissy to me it's all it's all just really kind of embarrassing I don't like it it feels really weird and girly and <laughs> there's an extent where I just I didn't enjoy it that much right so then to see, the reformed who have this very intellectual, right, uh, I don't even know a good way to put it, very structural, very tight, very clean, very serious manner of dealing with theology. It, it is absolutely amazing because this whole time, right, and especially being young evangelical, you know, Christianity is this thing for really over-emotional women and for little kids to dance and do stupid stuff for the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're coming from there, seeing these reformed, Christian theologians and how serious they are and and just how much gravity they put on the scriptures and how great the holiness of God is on their whole lives. It's really something that strikes you because when you live your whole life on this end of the spectrum where you're over in the emotionalism, oh man, the rationalism and, and and the intellectual theological system, it looks so attractive. And I just dove head I mean, I mean, I was just, I was sold. I, I went right in. Nothing was stopping me. I was start I started to consume so much Puritan material. I mean, it wasn't funny. I think I, um, not even to my own horror. I mean, this, this was to the detriment of my relationships because I was so obsessed with studying. I was almost putting off like forming healthy relationships with people because I just wanted to know. And it bothered me especially. In fact, this is what jarred me even more, um, that the world of theology was so much bigger than I expected it to be. Because when you grow up an evangelical and they don't touch on the history, they don't touch on anything outside of themselves, you get this very shallow, stale view of what Christianity is. And you start to think that Christianity is so simple. It's just Jesus dying for me and the Bible, and that's kind of it, right? But then you start to dive into different traditions of Christianity, and you find out that the Christian world is this massive ocean compared to the small puddle that I was used to. And it almost bothered me that I had no idea of anything outside my own tiny little puddle. I felt almost inadequate. I mean, I remember talking to people online, talking to friends from different denominations, and I just felt like an idiot. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, so, sometimes you sit there and you're just like, geez, like, you know, I, I'd read these. I remember the most striking thing that ever got me so upset as I, I was told that as a young Calvinist, or as a young person transitioned to the Reformed faith, that I should read Calvin's Institutes because it's a great place to start. I pop it open and I start reading and I don't understand what the hell he's talking about. I I mean, if I'm just honest, like there's so many phrases and words and these things that he's saying. I don't I don't know this historic Christian language. I don't understand the verbiage he's using. I don't understand, you know, these little examples he's giving. I don't even know the scriptures well enough or the church fathers well enough to know where he's pulling from. It just seemed like all it was French to me. Mm. (laughs) It was horrible. You know, you you feel so like. I, I can't even give it adequate words to describe it. But it is it is the worst feeling to be completely divorced from historic church talk. Cuz I mean, you talk to a you know, you talk to a reformed person, at least a good reformed person, they'll use historic church verbiage. You know, they'll they'll use proper theological terms. You look into the Lutheran Confessions, Small Catechism, it's all there. You go to Anglicans, talk to Anglicans, they got it. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, pick it, right? It's the non-denominationals, the, the American evangelicals who've thrown out all the historic church language and have tried to reinvent the wheel. But it's worse. <laughs> I mean, marginally worse than what it was before. <laughs> so, oh man, just... And it probably plays into it as well why there's so much, I mean, just rampant theological... Um, what's what's the word? Illiteracy. Yeah. Illiteracy, ex- exactly. Sorry, right. I couldn't think of it. Um, so much theological literacy because people don't know the historic terms. People don't know liturgical, church history, all those languages. And it's not even really that complicated. I mean, honestly, I mean, I taught myself it in like a year. It's not that hard to teach the kids. I, I, I bet if somebody younger than me could have picked up on it way faster. I mean, I'm sure a pastor would have caught up on it way faster. But it's not even that hard to teach. But once you start to learn the terms and you start to understand the history of the church, that really helps to start reading. like Especially as, as I started to learn the different terms of church history, I started to research... Um, Different theological terms. I could finally start reading different theologies and man it blew my mind I mean, it just absolutely blew my mind to see someone Like John Calvin in his institutes and to see it so systematic and so lined up and so Carefully construed and so carefully argued for I mean it it won me over in a sec The evangelicals could not even argue. There was no argument. I mean I had people who came to me to argue and I brought out John Calvin. I read out his arguments. I, I'll be honest. I'm not that smart. I just borrow from like other theologians that I read, and I just cheat off of them. <laughs> and I think a lot of the best pastors do. A lot of the best laymen do. A lot of the best apologetic debaters do. Um, and the evangelicals didn't have an answer. I mean, there was nothing. I brought it to pastors. Pastors would argue with me, and eventually they just didn't want to argue with me anymore. And I, I got called hard-hearted. I got called schismatic. I got called all kinds of names. Um, people who I grew up with and thought were my friends— pastors who had discipled me and really taught me the faith, they told me that my care for doctrine was so obsessive that I was going to divide the church and that my love for Jesus was growing cold. <laughs> I mean, how ironic is that? That this, this love that God had placed in me for the truth, for wanting to know what scripture said and wanting to know what scripture taught was something that was getting me accused elsewhere for being a lack of love for Christ. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so funny, right? And I mean, especially in light of, like, scriptures in Matthew, where Christ will say, you know, um, or, or perhaps this is in John. In fact, yeah, I think it's his prayer in in, in John later on when, when he says, um, sanctify them,
0: his yeah. disciples, by your truth. Yeah, John
1: 17. And this right, very yeah. thing that I was convinced, John 17, yeah, his beautiful prayer for his disciples. Uh, it, it was just... It was very hard for me because i saw scripture telling me you know is very clear doctrine matters and you should care about doctrine you should care about what your church teaches you you should care about what your confession of your faith is you should care about what you're teaching what you're believing i mean it's it's the is all this time lex credendi lex favendi or, or lex credendi lex arendi lex favendi right right that if we, our doctrine informs our faith and practice, and our faith and practice informs how we live, and if, that just wasn't found in the evangelical church. And so I started to make my transition anyway. Pastors told me I need to stop reading this stuff. I need to stop looking into the historic teachings. I need to stop looking into the Reformed faith. And um, I told them unless you can give me answers very clear answers to my questions and explain to me why certain verses seem to jive Against their teaching. I'm gonna keep reading them because they're giving me the answers that I'm looking for and and much to the dismay of a lot of people um, So after a while I, I was reformed Baptist for a bit After a while I was kind of won over by the argument that the reform that the Presbyterians make for infant baptism and for the sacraments And so I went to the more um, Presbyterian camp and, I mean I studied the Confessions, like, mad. I mean, you look at the Westminster, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confessions, the Canons of Dort. I was on top of them. I was a diligent student. I read Calvin's Institutes. I read various different works from different Reformed theologians. I mean, I was on top of it. I was reading about covenant theology. I was debating with people online. I was debating with pastors online. It was just something I I still love to debate people. And and meanwhile, you're uh, just like a 20-year-old kid working a <laughs> job Yeah, that's right I'm just some random 20 year old punk yeah oh man he's gone to bible it's, college in the philippines I know just some some random little blip somewhere and uh you know it was nothing I, I don't really care to make a name for myself that's n- not really me you know I, I kind of like to be more in the shadows kind of deal I'm, I'm definitely on the more quieter side in actual you know things but I just like debating I like talking about the scriptures I love doctrine I love the scriptures. And the Lord, I, I can thank nothing but the Lord, as Luther will tell us, right? It is not by reason or by my will or strength that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's just by the Lord's grace alone, right? And it's by the grace alone of God that, that I love doctrine and I love studying and I love talking about it. And I can get a little bit spicy sometimes, I will agree. I, I do have some harsher words, for, especially as, in the line of Luther, right? And in, in the same vein, you know? <laughs> You take care of the child, you know, you you,
0: comfort the you child. help the child, who, yeah. comfort
1: the child, that's right. You comfort the child who's been taught false doctrine right. and you kick the dog, you kick the false teacher, especially to pastors. I do have some harsher words towards pastors who don't teach the historic Christian faith as as the Lutheran church does. But I mean, for the most part, I just love discussing it. I do. So I'm this 20 year old kid. I'm studying the scriptures. I'm studying the church, uh, church history. I'm studying the Reformed faith. I'm challenging these pastors, and of course, all I get is you're a 20-year-old kid, what do you know? And I'm like, it's not an argument. <laughs> I'm sorry, but 20-year-old kid is not a good response to my to my problems with the church. So the pastors won't talk to me anymore. Um the my my girlfriend of of, of some time left me. She told me that uh we just wouldn't work out when I wanted to baptize our babies. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm told that I don't love Jesus. Okay, but hold I'm told you're, that you're I love still, You're
0: still reformed here, right? So they, well, it depends on the reformed, of course, but they wouldn't necessarily be in favor of baptizing the babies either. Presbyterians are, you know, depending on the, the stripe of that. So, yes. Okay, so you're moving moving—you're moving that direction, kind of Presbyterian ish, right? Yes. Um, at so, least in, in, in your thought, but you're not really attending a Presbyterian church or anything. You're still attending your old church, but your your mindset is changing.
1: That's right. And unfortunately, I mean, this is a big problem. In Las Vegas, we just don't have a lot of good confessional Presbyterian churches, Mm -hmm. and it really breaks my heart. We have a couple that um, at the time I did not deem confessional, and I still would not. If any Vegas listeners are watching, you probably know them if you know any Presbyterian churches out there, and they can challenge me. I still don't call them Presbyterian because they're definitely not Presbyterian. (laughs) They have some really wacky things in there. Whatever the case, I didn't have a good Presbyterian church. So, I mean, I was, I was visiting an Anglican church on the side because I was interested in Anglicanism because it seemed kind of okay. I thought they were a little steeped in their traditions because Anglicans definitely have a higher liturgy, higher liturgical stance than most Presbyterians. Yeah. But I definitely would not um, consider them outside that kind of realm because they do have the kind of Calvinist-y twinge, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I was struggling with that. I didn't really have a place to go. And I felt very abandoned. I, I knew I probably, th- there was a point coming where I could no longer go to my church. Because the pastors, although they would not kick me out, very politely said, if you continue to even talk about doctrine other than what the church teaches, then we're going to have to ask you to leave. And of course, to this young evangelical me, whose entire life is wrapped up in his church, I mean, I was going to become a pastor of this church, right? I was going to be ordained and sent off somewhere, because that's what the Bible college was leading up to. Right. So, I mean, I have nothing, right? And this was a very, I mean, I I think there's something to be said that when you read the Psalms, especially when I was younger, at least for me personally, when I read the Psalms as maybe a high schooler, I could not relate as much to the Psalms, especially the penitential Psalms that Mm -hmm. talk about just being in that dark night of the soul, of being in the valley, of just having enemies surrounding you and people hating you and despising you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it was at that time that I related so so very well to the Psalms and when I read verses like oh gosh like Psalms 13 especially like th- th- there was one um, let, let me actually pull it up really quick it's Psalms 13 if I remember right and oh man if, if I could not relate with this more it was it was crazy so it says um, Psalm 13 1 how long O Lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And I was in the spot where I said, God, this isn't fair. (laughs) You know, in in my finite human understanding, I said, this is not fair because I have abandoned my entire life. I've gotten rid of my my girlfriend. I've gotten rid of my family. I've abandoned people that I thought were my closest friends, my closest family and I'm having all this horrible depression, I'm having suicidal thoughts, because I wanted your doctrine more than anything else, and this is what I get, right, like, I just felt like this is my lot that I've gotten, I don't even have a good church to go to, and I mean, it was seriously, there were some nights where it was really what I would consider just this dark night of the soul, where I felt so much dread in my heart saying, what do I even have now, I'm I'm three years, four years, no degree to show for it, no no proper degree to show for it. At least the church that I was going to be a pastor and abandoned me. All my friends abandoned me. My fiance, well not fiance technically, gf girlfriend abandoned me. Um, even my family's just weirded out by my theology, weirded out by what I'm doing. What on earth do I do? And and I remember just sitting there night after night, and I, gosh, it was it was probably one of the worst times of my life. I mean, I cannot even tell you how hard the depression was I mean I, I read <laughs> you know I, just, I look back now and I'm just like gosh suck it up Jacob it wasn't even that bad <laughs> but man it, I could relate so well with you know you know Jeremiah or not, actually no, I think it was Isaiah I think it was Isaiah right after he had um, called down the fire and he was burning you know the prophets of, of Baal and he, and he killed them all after the fire came down and burned up their altar and um, sure then he you. ran and hid right and he heard that Jezebel is coming to destroy him and that in his mind, there's no longer any servants of Christ. That he's the last one left. And that it's just, he's in this valley of like, he's the only one left. And the only power in the land is coming to just take his life. Yeah. And he says to God, just like, God, why? Like, what have you done to me? Why have you left me this way? And God, you know, God doesn't come to, he doesn't come necessarily to rebuke him. But he says, Jeremiah, chill. <laughs> I have people. That I have, I have plenty of Christians, plenty of faithful remnant that you don't even know about. Relax, I am God and you are not. You know, and it was this word that I needed to hear, and thankfully, I had this very great friend Eric Johansson. He's this of all people, just this missionary in Thailand, who has a non-denominational church in Thailand, and I met him during a Thailand's mission trip that I coordinated when I was in Bible college and believe it or not, he was in the same place I was. He was slowly becoming more reformed, becoming more, coming more to the historic Christian faith. And he was also questioning what his church was teaching. He was also attached to a Calvary chapel and, um, he had his own problems, his own struggles. He was also kind of questioning like, is this right? Is this what I should be believing? Is this, is this where I should be? And, um, wait, we, we made really good friends quick. We talk, we were talking over time, we were still messaging each other, and he was so faithfully calling me and asking me and and talking to me when I was in the deepest of my depression. I mean, I thank God, the Lord be praised, that he was so merciful to provide somebody to come and talk to me when I was like that. And um, (laughs) at the time, I was struggling in my Reformed faith, because I, I love the Reformed faith, I think it has a lot of merit, but there definitely is a problem in the Reformed faith. And that is that, that they have this problem with assurance. And I think this is the most glaring problem. And, it, and there's many problems that can be discussed when you compare it to the Lutheran faith. You can talk about how the Calvinist tulip, the idea of their soteriology, which mm-hmm. is this total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. There's, there's a little bit of faults in it, how they view election, right? This double predestination. You could talk about, how their view of the sacraments is weird. You can talk about, you know, a lot of things. But they have this wrong view of assurance. And it is that you find assurance by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit and by your actions. And that is the number one way that you find assurance. And so when you question in the Reformed faith, right, they have this idea of election in which the way that people are saved is monergistic, right? God is the one who completes the saving. But for the reformed, he either elects you to salvation before the foundations of time or elects you to damnation or, as they would call it, he reprobates people before the foundations of time. And this is a very large concern for the reformed, because the question is, how do I know if I'm elect or if I'm reprobate? You know, how do I know if God's chosen me before the foundations of time? And how do I know whether I'm not chosen before the foundations of time? And their problem with answering this is they don't believe the sacraments are efficacious in saving, or at least they don't believe it to the extent that Lutherans do. And I wanna be careful with this in case we have any reformed listeners. I'm not saying that they do not believe the sacraments impart grace. However, there is a sense in which for them, the sacraments only impart grace if you are elect. And if you're not elect, it's merely an offering to you, but not actually something that's efficacious towards delivering you grace. And so the big question in every Reformed person's mind, at least in my mind was, and, and I was very diligent in studying the Reformed faith. I mean, if you looked at me from the out, outside, I was Reformed or Reformed. I was the diligent layman who studied the scriptures. I argued with pastors. I honestly, and I, I don't mean to you know toot my own horn here. I, really, it's more of a sad thing for the Presbyterian church ministers. But I would say that I knew the confessions better than a lot of the ministers did when I argued with them, which is kind of you know to the shame of them. and. I mean, not to say that we don't have our own problems in the LCMS with pastors not knowing the confessions very well, because it definitely is a problem as well, or at least not employing the teaching of them very well, but whatever the case, I mean, I was there, I was that, I was the Christian, I was the dedicated guy whose heart was on fire for God, who was studying his scriptures day in, day out, studying the confessions day in, day out, but there was this little spark inside of me that said, but what, what if this is some sort of temporary faith, which the Reformed teach? That looks and smells and feels and tastes like true faith. Right. But it's gonna evaporate soon. Yeah. And I'm just gonna lose it. And I'm not and gonna and, be and a then true you Christian. You never anymore. were a Christian, right?
0: Oh, sorry, what was that? And then and then they would say, You never were a Christian. Exactly. If you really were, and then, then they you wouldn't would have
1: walked say, away. Exactly. And they would say, you know, if you walk away, that means you never were a Christian to start with. Right. And I, I it was this it was almost like it's funny, you know, Brian Wolfman will put his evangelical um his evangelical uh, pendulum where right. you go back between um what what is it again can, can, can you remind despair. me of what he says for that, that been... despair on one side right that you're despairing in yeah. yourself because you see
0: your sin and then there's <laughs> there's uh, pride on the other side right that you think that you're doing enough and so you, you kind of like the pharisee right so either you're you're despairing in your own works and you can't possibly be saved god couldn't possibly love you or god totally loves you because you're awesome
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so, so here's the funny part, though, is I thought I was getting out of that by coming to the Reformed faith. Yeah. But they have the same exact problem. Although it's a little bit different, but it's still the pendulum of despair and pride. Despair isn't despairing whether or not you're elect. And I mean, I have friends, especially one named Levi, who, who went on this whole journey with me. Same exact journey. He's, he's faithfully Lutheran now, and I, I love him. I love where God has brought him. Through his word but um he he was more on the despair side especially because he despaired his salvation in and out i mean it was it was like there were nights because we went to the same bible college that he would be crying like and he would just be in in utter tears he wouldn't want anybody to see him but i you know i'd catch him trying to be alone and say what's wrong and he said i just don't know if i'm a christian i like i don't know if i'm sincere enough i don't know if i'm broken enough over my sin i don't know if, if, if if I'm doing enough, I don't know if, I, if I'm reading the Bible enough. I don't know if I'm knowledgeable about God enough. And of course, the reformed answer to that would be, well, if you're feeling that way, you're probably elect. But that doesn't help at all, because right. all that says is, well, am I broken enough? Is this sincere enough? Am I actually sincere? Am I just drawing up alligator tears because I want to know I'm elect? It's dangerous, and it draws you into despair. And of course, for me, I, I went more on the side of pride. Because I more often said, I'm, oh yeah, I'm, I'm knowledgeable about God. I'm studying the scriptures. I'm studying the confessions. I am elect. There's no question about it. But either way, we both would go back and forth on this pendulum. Back and forth, back and forth, for despair. So the Reformed had the same exact problem. <laughs> because they don't have the objectivity of right. the sacraments. Right. And so I, I'm reading the scriptures more and more. I'm studying more and more. And I'm starting... I mean, this is just by God's grace. There's no reason I should have been questioning it. There's absolutely nothing in the, in the, in the reformed confessions that should have brought me to be thinking about this. But I was some, for some reason, other than that God's grace was ripping my eyes onto it. I was becoming very curious about baptism. And I started to read passages like, like in first Peter, where he says this, this baptism now saves you, you know, not as a mere washing of water, but, but, but as a washing away of your sins. Right. And I started reading these passages in Acts, where Peter will say, you know, rise, be baptized for the washing away of your sins, and God will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I started reading in Acts 22, right, where you have Paul talking about his conversion experience. Ananias says, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the washing away of your sins. I might be mixing up the verbiage there a little bit in each one, but they all convey this washing away of sins, this forgiving of sins. This salvation, this baptism saves you. And even in Colossians, right? A lot of times, and the evangelicals and even the Reformed are tempted to say this, that there are these two baptisms, right? This baptism of the Holy Spirit and this baptism with water. And I started to say, no, that's not what the scriptures say. In Colossians, we declare one faith, one Lord, one baptism. There's not two baptisms, right? When Ananias tells Paul, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Paul had already had his whole experience where Christ preached the strictest gospel to him on the road to Damascus, right? There was, there was not this, oh, he was baptized then. So now let's do the baptizing of water for the washing away of sins. Or let's do this baptism of the spirit for the washing away of sins. No, he had his experience already, right? This is Ananias saying clear cut rise, be baptized with water for the washing away of your sins. This was not some spirit baptism that Ananias was calling down. And even if it was, that disregards what they teach about it. Because they don't teach that the spirit baptism comes through means. They teach it comes at some random time. And so I started really questioning this. And, And really, when you look at plainly what the scriptures say, I started to talk to my reform friends. and I said, why can't I just say baptism saves? And they said, well, I guess you can, because we believe that it gives grace. But that's just kind of weird. And I mean, it would get to the point where I'd say, why is that weird? The Bible says it so clearly. Why can't I come to a baptism and just say what the scripture says? And they gave me no answer. Absolutely nothing. I, I tried talking to pastors. Pastors would not talk to me. I tried talking to pastors online. That didn't yield me very much. All it yielded was people saying that I had Romophobia and that I was liking Rome too much. And yeah, that's kind of it. I was very disappointed. And so it was at this point... Um, it was about, I'd say about six months since I I got back from the Philippines that I said, I need a church. Like, I just need a place. But I don't know anywhere that teaches very clearly about total depravity or original sin who also doesn't just, you know, go crazy like Rome does and and have such confusion. You know, I'm, I'm looking into Rome at this point as well. I'm looking to Eastern Orthodox and they're just this huge mess of doctrine. I mean, even now, Rome is just this giant... I mean, I don't even know if you could call it. It's really an incoherent mess, if I want to be as nice as I can be about it, uh, of these of these councils and these popes and these declarations and these writings and the catechism, which tries to tell you what they believe, which only ends up confusing you because it's so broad and so, so pulled apart and so confusing, and you don't know what they hold to and what they do hold to and certain things. I mean, just as an example, right? I was talking to a Papist who I I was really like, I I do love Papists. Don't get me wrong. I really like them. I I like talking to them. I have a lot of really good Papist friends, but I'm talking to one and I ask him, you know, like if in the Vatican, right. Or, uh, what was it? What was their council that called us anathema for believing uh, by grace through faith alone? Trent. Yeah. Council of Trent. You're right. Right. Sorry. Um, and the council of Trent, right. I said, you declare us anathema, which is essentially telling us that we're going to hell for declaring this. How can you come alongside in in the Vatican II and say that's just okay now? And he says, "Well, by anathema we actually meant, you know, that you just are outside the main Catholic faith." And I'm like, "Okay, why are you burning people at the stake then?" Right. <laughs> like right. why was the pope looking approvingly at people burning people at the stake? And he said, "Well, you know, the pope wasn't directly involved." And I'm like, "But he said nothing about it and didn't try to stop anybody." Yeah. You know, and there's no answer
0: okay to that, it. right? Right.
1: And the big thing for me, right, is you look at the Magisterium, and you say, well, if the Magisterium is consistent, why do you guys have to shift your definitions of things? Why not just, why not just accept that you can have tradition but not put it above Scripture? And so I just I couldn't buy it with the Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox is better only slightly. But the problem with the East is that I mean they're just about as just as confused with their doctrinal standpoints as I think Roman Catholics are. But well, the one thing that they're very firm on is this whole idea that's not really monarchistic. So I'm like. I don't really know if I can get behind that either. You know, I, they're much more, gosh, almost evangelically American evangelicalized in the way that they view soteriology and salvation. And I'm like, yeah, I just I can't get in that either. So I was so frustrated. I said, who holds to the biblical toll of depravity, but also like believes in the sacraments? I can't find anybody. And Lutherans weren't even on my radar. I mean, I I had not even ever heard of them. And so, so the reason why I mentioned earlier about this Thai pastor. Is because he said, dude, I think I know exactly who you're searching for. And he sent me a Reverend Fisk video, (laughs) a little bit of him. And he sent me the small catechism. And I said, okay, let's check this out. So I watched one Reverend Fisk video and I'm like, oh, I like what this guy's saying. Okay, let's check out the small catechism, you know. So I'm reading the small catechism and I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. So, so so you know, I opened the, I find the book of Concord eventually. And I mean, at this point I'm ravenous because I have to find a church. But I don't want to join a church if, unless I know what they believe first. Because I've been burned, I mean, too many times to count doing this before. So I'm like, I'm going to read this book of Concord. So I think within three months, I blast through the book of Concord. I read it all. And I'm like, you know, obviously there's some places I still need to brush up on, of course, like in the Solid Declaration. That was more of a skim, really. <laughs> but um, my goodness, this is like the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And I said, where can I find a church that teaches this so I'm looking online I'm like where are the Lutheran churches that actually teach the LCMS and pretty pretty fast I was talking to some Lutheran guys they got me really cleared up already because I was Presbyterian at the time they said yeah LCMS is like PCA don't go to Elca. they're like PCUSA right for any Presbyterians listening right now I don't know exactly what I mean when I say that for anybody else sorry you don't get the joke <laughs> <laughs> but um so yeah I found LCMS I joined and man divine service was fantastic I'll tell you what, I didn't join originally for the liturgy. I joined for the theology at first. But then when I started to understand, um, especially uh, Lex rendi Lex rendi, that our doctrine informs our practice, I got the liturgical fever so hard. I mean, I, I fell in love with the liturgy. I understood why we had the liturgy. Um, I think probably one of the most beautiful things that I had coming into Lutheran church was true assurance. Because now no longer, was my entire assurance as a Christian based upon my inner experience or upon how broken I was over my sin or upon some emotional experience that I was feeling in the worship service. Instead, it was this objective outside of me kind of thing. Instead, when I was asked how I was saved, right? Let's go back to my evangelical days. If you were to ask me, Jacob, how do you know you're saved? I'd say, well, I made a decision for Christ and I'm, I'm sold out for God and I'm studying the scriptures and I really want to be a Christian and I'm just, I'm a good Christian now. So I'd answer that when I was reformed I would probably answer with you maybe because I was baptized into Christ that might have been something when I was farther along Orthodox Presbyterian but when I was just a regular reformed Baptist Presbyterian it would be well uh, because I believe I'm regenerated I'm a regenerated Christian and I believe that because I have the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit that shows me by my works and by my inner wranglings with sin that I am a true Christian right mm-hmm. nothing outside of myself always inside never something that I can call to on the outside, always the internal. Now as a Lutheran, if I asked, how do you know you're saved? I can point to something outside of me and say, I know that I am saved because when I was baptized by water and the word, God outside of myself promised me, Jacob, as surely as I've baptized you right now, you are being brought into my son's death. And as surely as you're being brought into his death by this water and word brought over you, I am going to resurrect you into his life. And so my only answer now is, of course, I'm baptized. I have a promise from God that he's going to raise me on the last day. And of course, some other things come to that, right? I mean, if somebody asks me how I know I'm a Christian, I can tell them, because I went to absolution and the pastor, in the stead of Christ, told me I'm forgiven and that Christ's death is for me. And when I took the Lord's Uh, the Lord's body and blood at the Eucharist, right? The pastor told me that this body and blood was for me, directly to me, outside of myself, on my mouth. I was told it's for me. And now I don't have to like, oh, it's just so beautiful. I I love talking about it still. I get so excited and giddy just thinking about it because it's no longer this inner thing that I have to muster up. I come to church, I hear the word preach and I go, how do I know it's for me? Because I'm baptized. How do I know that when the pastor tells me that Christ died for me, when the pastor makes all these beautiful points in the text about what Christ suffered, about the prophecies leading up to Christ, about Christ's death on the cross, about his resurrection, how do I know it's all for me? Because Christ baptized me. Because God in my baptism put Christ's righteous robes over me and said, you are my beloved son. Because when I once was an enemy of God's kingdom, when I was against him, when I was in the kingdom of Satan, a child of the devil, God adopted me into his family through my baptism. And that's something objective that cannot change. In my inside, I can betray God on my inside, and I often do because I am both saint and sinner. But nothing can betray what Christ did to me, what the Father has done to me through baptism. Because that's objective that cannot change, that's never going to change. And that's something that the Lutherans just have so down on lock. And I mean, I don't even want to make it sound like this is something distinctly Lutheran. This is just the Bible what the Bible says. This is what Romans 6 tells us. This is what 1 Peter tells us. This is the very first sermon that Peter ever gave in Acts 2 when he gives the entire length of the law of the people. And the people have nothing to do but go, oh my gosh. Like, cut to the heart. What are we supposed to do now? Nothing. Be baptized by God. Let God baptize you and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can absolutely do nothing in response to this law preaching to you that you've done everything wrong. You can only let God baptize you and receive his grace. And that's just, it's something nobody else has. Nobody else has it. I've been to all the denominations. I mean, I really, to our listeners listening right now, I cannot emphasize this enough. I've been to all of them. I've been to the reformed Baptists. I've been to the non-denominational. I've been to the Baptists. I've been to the Presbyterians. I've dabbled in the Anglicans. I've looked at the Reformed or the Roman Catholic churches. I've looked at Eastern Orthodox. None of them have the assurance of sins forgiven outside of yourself in the sacraments. They have little glimmers of it, the Roman Catholics especially, and the Anglicans, they have little glimmers, but they don't have the full goods that God wants to give you in the sacraments, and it's just, oh, it's so freeing. I mean, it is the most freeing thing I've ever been in, I've, I've ever been to. I'm no longer on this pendulum of, of you know, am, am, I, am I great, am I an awesome Christian, or am I despairing because I'm not that great of a Christian? I just, I, I haven't been what God's called me to be. Instead, it's no longer it myself. It's looking to Christ and saying, has Christ been the ideal Christian? Has Christ been what he needs to be for me? And in that, you always say yes. You always right. say amen. Right. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And that is the promises to you he makes in your baptism. Yeah. And that's oh, something glorious that I'll never give up now. I mean, it's something that I, that's something that I, I think the reason, I mean, especially as people see me sometimes online, I definitely can give a very harsh word to some pastors if they if they depart from historic faith the historic confessions or really true Lutheranism or even um the uniqueness of the sacraments to the congregants because this is something that is so deep to me because of how long I lived it fit and not have And something that I think us would do so well to me, seriously. But um yeah, yeah, I mean that is that is my story. That that is the entirety of it. That's where I am now. Um, I love Lutheran church. I do see a lot of problems in nowadays Lutheran church. A lot of, um, I mean, there's there's just a lot of issues in any church body, I'm sure, because we are sinners. And, sure. and we, I mean, as much as anybody else, we bring problems to the table because we're bringing our sinful natures to the table. Right. But at the same time, I love Lutheran church. I love the LCMS. I want to see it improved. I want to see it transformed. I want to see, um, really, I mean, just reform. I want to see... Lutherans in love with their confessions as much as I'm in love with their confessions because it's true, because it's right because it's what God wants to give us
0: yeah, awesome yeah, that, that'll that dovetail in nicely um, another time when we can talk about uh, my, my history and where I came from and, and some of that kind of stuff too because I have a, a different experience but, but some similarities along the way uh, within Lutheranism and that kind of thing so that's awesome alright, we've been going for, I don't know, a little over an hour now so that's probably oh no no, it's good. Can I talk too long? No, it's good. it's good. It's all good stuff. I think it's really helpful for people. Um, yeah, I just remember getting this email from, from the pastor that said, hey, this this kid, Jacob, showed up in my office the other day and wanted to talk about Lutheranism out of nowhere. And uh, he's got a kind of a weird background of experience and went to Bible college and this kind of thing. And so if you guys see this, this young guy walking around church, um, <laughs> introduce yourself to him and uh, get to know him. So... A couple Sundays later, I was like, "That must be that guy that the pastor was talking about." So, we've been we've been talking about stuff ever since. It's awesome.
1: Absolutely, and Dave. I mean, I can't, I can't. Uh, gosh, I can't talk you up enough. Like, <laughs> not even just to boast or anything. But Dave, Dave's been a wonderful, just part of me transitioning to Lutheranism. He definitely. Um, if I had to say one of my weakest points, even now is definitely the understanding of the historic liturgy, because that's just not something I even considered coming into the Lutheran church. You know, it was all a theological thing for me. And so Dave's been absolutely helpful in discussing things with me, talking about the liturgy, talking about why we practice what we practice. Um, And and he's been just paramount in helping really develop my understanding of why Lutherans believe what they believe, where they get it from the scriptures. And it's been wonderful. I mean... (laughs) I had a great that's time. Just, that and that's even the reason from, why I'm doing this podcast. Yeah. I think that's just comes so I, from I my met Dave at my church. Lack of that in my experience oh. too. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? Because like I-, I met Dave at my church. He was one of the elders at the time. Um and that was back in Las Vegas. And I don't even live there anymore. I'm over <laughs> I'm over in Kansas. I met a beautiful Lutheran girl online and we're getting married in August. I'm really excited. But um, I'm not even in Las Vegas anymore, and it was just one of those things where I just I met Dave and I knew this was going to be just one of my lifelong friends. I, I knew we just had this wonderful connection, really kind of a David and Jonathan kind of thing, just encouraging <laughs> one another and talking about theology with one another. I mean, I, I can't understand, like every time I came to church, I, I love going to church, right? I, mean, I love receiving Word in Sacrament, but there was this very creeping part of me that was like, I just want to go to church to talk with him about theology and what I'm discussing with people. And... And the things I'm learning and, oh, just great stuff. And he's been so helpful in my learning and just really awesome time. And that's why we have this podcast now is because we were like, dude, we got to do something. We got to discuss things. We have to, you know, we don't want to end our discussion when I leave. We want to keep on going with our discussion. We want to keep on learning together, discussing the historic faith together, um, discussing Lutheranism together and, and just our apology. It's good stuff.
0: Cool. That's awesome all right well let's let's cut it here and we can do some more another time here
1: all right all right